but let's be glad for what we had and want to come. It sounds like we're going to retire with that. Sorry, Alex, what were you saying? That was my uh, pandemic theme song. The <laughs> song I've been listening to the most during this uh, this time. Really? Do you have it on loop? Are you looping it in your house? Damn, I should. <laughs> these, are, uh, these are the good old days. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show as always, Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? And my family's gone, and the jar of kimchi in the fridge hit just the right fermentation window. Oh, I'm in heaven. <laughs> so where's your family now? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Pittsburgh. So they went back to the same people that they'd visited before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Uh, her family, I call them the same people, though, so. <laughs> <laughs> more breaking news from, more, from my house. You know how uh, my mail's been broken? We've gone a week or so a few times during the pandemic where we received absolutely no mail at my home, a three-flat. No mail for weeks at a time for anyone in the building, for any of the residents. Then packages were being stolen by foyer felons through lobby larceny, then busting the criminal in the act of stealing said packages and fearing he gave me covid well, Saturday, we had a whole new adventure in mail. We didn't receive any mail at all. Nothing except the August 17th, 2020 issue of Star Magazine. But the issue of Star Magazine did not come in the mail. How do I know? There is no mailing address label on the August 17th, 2020 issue of Star Magazine that showed up in our vestibule. It's as if late Friday night or very early Saturday morning, some octogenarian was walking down the street and had either finished the issue or thought we would enjoy it more than they, so they left it in pristine shape just inside our door. And as the only people who read Star Magazine are octogenarians, the mystery becomes more mysterious. How do I know only people over 80 read Star Magazine? The front page story for the August 17th, 2020 issue is about the fight of lies, jealousy, and fake tears between Kelly, Kathy Lee, and Regis. And you gotta be closing in on death if you think any of those three still qualify as stars. And if you know the last names of all three of those people... You should probably go see your doctor. But this means someone entered our building, left an issue of Star Magazine, which to me is far more frightening 
than criminals stealing our packages. On today's show, protests against Chinese rule over Hong Kong have been received with skepticism among the left outside of Hong Kong, and especially here in the U.S., with protesters in Hong Kong being shown on Fox News Channel, waving U.S. flags and chants demanding help from the U.S. Congress and President Trump. It's easy to understand that skepticism. The friend of my enemy is my enemy makes sense. What's missed is that Fox News is focusing on the far-right reactionaries in the crowd, naturally, as they always do, misrepresenting the movement in a way that praises Trump. What's missed even more is how the Chinese attempts at controlling Hong Kong are acts of colonialism, reflecting a long history of colonialism that goes from the British Empire nearly completely unchanged to what it is considered Hong Kong's independence today. We'll consider the Hong Kong protests not as pro-Trump rallies created by the CIA and funded by covert operations, but as protests against colonialism, imperialism, and having their op- and hearing their opposition to state violence with the uprising to the U.S. against racialized police violence. In a few, how those things are all related, in a few, when we speak with members of the writing, translating, and organizing Laosan Collective, Laosan Collective, Andy W. and Promise Lee, who wrote the Tempest Magazine article, Left on an Island, Hong Kong, China, and International Solidarity. The Hong Kong Center Lausanne Collective, which, or Lausanne, I'm get that right sooner or later. It's got to be an O in there instead of a U. The Hong Kong Centered Lausanne Collective, which fights the transnational left and cross-border solidarity and a future for Hong Kong based on class struggle, migrant f- justice, anti-racism, and feminism. Andy is an organizer and writer based in Northern California. Promise is a socialist activist from Hong Kong and L.A. He's not only a member of Laosan Collective, Solidarity U.S., but also a member of the Democratic Socialists of America and a former tenant organizer in Los Angeles, Los Angeles's Chinatown. This article, again, appears in Tempest Magazine, a new publication, which you can now find at Tempest Mag. It also features in its first issue an interview with past guest Donna Merch. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is salmon. In a 2018 Healthline article that we've been talking about a lot called The 23 Best Hangover Foods, uh, an article has already been given us watermelon, honey, crackers, and blueberries as separate hangover cures. Registered dietitian Lizzie Strait, we just have her on the show at this point, uh, writes, Salmon is rich in omega-3 fatty acids that are excellent at decreasing inflammation in your body. Citing the study, fatty acids from fish, the anti-inflammatory potential of long-chain omega-3 fatty acids. Lizzie continues, since drinking alcohol can increase the number of compounds that increase inflammation, eating salmon or other fatty fish may be a good way to ease hangover symptoms, which was shown in the report, Effects of Alcohol Hangover on Cytokine Production in Healthy Subjects. Which I believe Lizzie cites a few too many times, in my opinion. That makes this... Speaking of citing things a few too many times uh, this segment, uh, that makes this week's Hangover Cure salmon. And thanks to Lizzie Strait for giving us five straight weeks of Hangover Cures, the other 18 of the 23 cures she offers, we've already mentioned. But anyway, thanks, Lizzie, or however you want to end it. (laughs) That's the end of our covering of Lizzie Strait's article on 23 Hangover Cures. This is not the media. You can tell from that segment. This is hell. Next week, at this very moment, at this time, seven days from now, I'll be waking up to a Monday morning, not here in Chicago, but at Cottage 
on lake for our annual family summer vacation. The same falling down cabins that our family has been renting for 60 years, starting as renters before I was even born. And these places are <laughs> really falling down. Luckily this year we won't be in our regular cabin, the worst of the four. The front door doesn't open all the way. The concrete slab front porch is broken in half right in front of our door. That crack seemingly runs through <laughs> the floor and up the walls of the interior of our unit, leaving spaces between our place and the other half of the duplex that are big enough for field mice to pass through easily without having to contort their bodies in any way. At least the gas works. You know it works because the place is constantly filled with the smell of gas. I'm told by family that's already up north. Prospective renters drop by to check out our crappy half the duplex, thinking they may want to rent as there are few vacancies on the lake, with many resorts not opening for the summer due to the pandemic, or trying to sell out to rich suburbanites who are looking for a bunker far away from the city so they can keep safe from COVID or whatever the next pandemic happens to be. The family entered our crumbling old place where we would stay every year. Spent a very brief time looking around. There's not much to see, a kitchen, living, dining area that's all in one gigantic, one small room actually. A single bedroom. It, the whole thing is maybe 300 square feet tops if you're lucky. Upon leaving, the preteen said loud enough for everyone to hear, for his parents to hear, for the other tenants to hear, for the owners to hear. He looked back in and said, Dad, that place is crumbling. Yes, it's the kind of accommodations that a bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host can afford. But we'll be in one of the bigger two-bedroom cabins right up on the lake. The duplex is behind the lake cabins, which blocks the view. I told you our old place sucked, so much more comfortable our new place is going to be. Although there is a tree growing into the roof of the building. So this year we will not have to deal with the frightening prospect of our half of the duplex falling in on us. Not to worry, with the virus there will be plenty of reasons to not be totally relaxed on vacation, instead spending some of this year's holiday anxious about venturing into small town shops in rural America, locally owned stores that are often too small to abide by any kind of social distancing. And with the area where we are visiting having voted 2-1 to one for Trump in 2016, you know wearing a freaking mask and social distancing is tantamount to distributing Mao's Little Red Book to children at playgrounds throughout the region. As I said, some family is already there, and we are getting reports back about the degree to which locals and tourists are observing any kind of safety protocols in response to the pandemic. And they are... Mixed, at best. A local meat shop and grocery featuring locally made foods, including cheeses, breads, even pasties, just opened up a second store right next door with produce, a deli, and an ice cream stand that I was looking forward to visiting for the first time. But apparently all of the workers were wearing masks. The problem is they were only wearing masks around their necks, and few, if any, of the customers were wearing masks in a store with aisles only wide enough for a, a really small shopping cart. So it doesn't look like we'll be going to RJ's this year, which sucks because they have a good beer selection. And that's hard to find in small town America. We're also told the local Walmart, which was devastating to the small family owned businesses in the area, 
They ain't doing uh, that great a job either when it comes to their workers or shoppers wearing masks despite what the global behemoth claims their stores are doing to redu reduce the spread. Not that we care, we never go to that Walmart, or any Walmart, because we believe in shopping local, helping out local families and their small businesses, all of which the Trump supporters apparently despise, more than willing to save five cents on a gallon of milk and put their neighbors out of a job. I guess that's where conservatism is today. The produce stand where we go every year to get in-season Michigan peaches and blueberries and sweet corn and to get pinconning cheese and Michigan cheddar where they grow nearly all of their own produce in surrounding greenhouses and buildings that all encircle the fruit stand. Scouts have told us that they seem to follow safety protocols early in the day, but as they get closer to closing, the masks start falling below the chins. Same with the amazing butcher across the street that sells the best bacon I have ever had at six bucks a pound. The practice in local stores seems to be employees being more diligent about protecting themselves early in the day, maybe in anticipation of older shoppers, and then becoming more laxed toward the evening. Which means seven days from now I'll be getting up early, going to town and shopping at all the local stores just as they open, hoping that workers may be a bit more cognizant of their clientele's safety in the early hours when old people shop. Of course, we could just bring everything we need for the week with us from Chicago, avoiding the stores altogether. That's a lot of food and a lot of beer to put in a small 2006 rusting out Nissan Sentra that's also carrying all of our clothes and everything else we're going to need at the lake. Besides, there's a new sausage shop that claims to have 15 kinds of bratwurst and cured meats are my kryptonite. Fifteen! So, one week from now, I will be venturing to Trump country's cramped small-town stores, wearing a mask and probably gloves as well, shopping amongst the vulnerable elderly, likely doing it hungover as it will be our first morning at the lake and the previous first night, Sunday night. We usually get lit celebrating with family. My anxiety one week from today will likely be skyrocketing as I get the stink eye from non-mask wearers, constantly obsessing about how far six feet the way really is, and with limited depth perception, I'm not that great at that. Wondering if I should have gotten a face shield as well, maybe a whole hazmat suit. And next week, even when on vacation, I won't be able to avoid saying either out loud or to myself, Jesus, even up here, this is hell coming up the left outside Hong Kong, maybe getting the protests there all wrong. And we'll have Rotten History and tell you the rest of this week's guests live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell. Many on the left outside Hong Kong see the protests there as supporting the U.S. or President Trump or being created by the CIA or a covert as a covert operation or a, a U.S. project to wrest control of Hong Kong away from China and a build-up to a larger military confrontation, which is far different from what our guests see in the protests, and that is a movement against colonialism, imperialism, and the capital interests that drive state violence. Here to explain, members of the writing, translating, and organizing Laosan Collective, Andy W. and Promise Lee wrote the Tempest magazine article, Left on an Island, Hong Kong, China, and International Solidarity. First, welcome to This is Hell, Andy. 
Thank you. Happy to be here. Andy is an organizer and writer based in Northern California. And welcome to This Is Hell Promise. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Promise is a socialist activist from Hong Kong, Los Angeles, not only a member of Laosan Collective Solidarity, U.S., and also a member of the Democratic Socialists of America and a former tenant organizer in Los Angeles' Chinatown. You can find out more about the Laosan Collective at lausan.hk, and you can follow them on Twitter at lausanhk as well. Find out more about the new magazine, Tempest Magazine, by going to tempestmag.com. Dot org. The editors of The Tempest write, for the U.S. left, rather than international class solidarity as its starting point, campist politics have increasingly can't come to the fore. So what do you mean by campus politics? And to you, what explains those campus politics being prioritized by the U.S. left over any international class solidarity? I think the story actually begins um, right before the Hong Kong movement, right last year. I think um, in the last couple of years, especially since um, the Syrian revolution, um, um, you know, a lot of stuff going on from Nicaragua and, and stuff like that. There's been increasingly kind of a a um, you know a sphere of you know so-called anti-imperialist left. Um, you know that's been blatantly kind of um, disseminating disinformation, right? That um, you know claims to support and 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 kind of apologizes for. Um, you know, the kind of um, worst authoritarian right-wing regimes, um, you know, as long as they, they seem, you know, sufficiently um, um, kind of opposed enough to the U.S. for these writers' likings. Um, and of course, I think the Hong Kong movement and, you know, I think, you know, outlets like Grayson Magazine and you get writers like Ben Norton and Max Blumenthal, um, they've been kind of um, you know, at the center of this kind of, right, you know, basically right-wing disinformation campaign. Um, where they, um, you know, where they basically amplify, right? Um, despite the rhetoric, they, they amplify this kind of U.S.-China new Cold War dynamic um, that, uh, you know, that polarizes um, 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 kind of the world, the geopolitics, and the two camps. Um, that's really following really the dictates, right, and the demands and desires of, of the global state elites. Um, that really doesn't benefit the international working class at all. And um, you know, Laosan's intervention and also our peace of intervention is, um, you know, not, not just saying that actually, you know, China is worse or China is equally as bad as the United States, but it's to establish the fact that, you know, this new Cold War paradigm, that's being amplified by these global elites and these so-called anti-imperialist um, writers actually, um, you know, do not benefit the left at all and is a total obstacle to international solidarity. And that, um, you know, these state elites from China to the United States are, are definitely connected, right, in terms of capital investments in terms of policing exchanges and all these things. Um, you know, they're, they're U.S.-made tear gas, um, U.K.-made tear gas on the ground um, um, being deployed against protesters like, alongside Chinese-made tear gas. I think that's, that's, uh, that's, that's, there's, there's no better symbol, right, um, um, to talk about how um, you know, these different forms of state repression are totally connected um, with each other. And as mass movements together, we need to link up as well, too, and resist, you know, both... Um, you know, this kind of new Cold War dynamic that's being pushed on us um, as well um, by both um, um, kind of, you know, people we usually fight against, um, as well as um, these people on the left who, who are sprouting um, these types of disinformation campaigns. 
which I think we can go more into later. Let me uh, follow up with you on that then, uh, Promise, real quick, because you compared that to what is taking place when it comes to left criticism vis-a-vis Syria. The U.S. likely is having some impact on the protests in Hong Kong. They likely had some impact on what was taking place in Syria. The CIA is likely doing something in both those places. Is any role the U.S. is playing in Hong Kong's protests being exaggerated? Because whenever I see someone mentioning the Hong Kong protests online, they're usually shot down as naive. So why do you think any role the CIA or the U.S. is playing in the Hong Kong protests, why do you think that may be exaggerated? And why does the U.S. or the outside left exaggerate that presence and that role? Right. I think, um, you know, I think the first question I, I usually pose to these, these, these kind of, um, you know, quote unquote leftists is what, what right do these people have to judge these movements? Right. Um, in terms of, you know, um, you know, in terms of, you know, having to be morally pure protesters of some kind who, who, who aren't supposed to, um, you know, take any sort of um, aid and stuff, even though, you know, of course, in Los Angeles positions, we, we, we pose any sort of um, you know, kind of U.S. intervention, and we recognize, right, this kind of destructive history of U.S. intervention to foreign policy. But at the same time, it's, it's, um, you know, I think, I think, um, um, yes, I think it's true that, um, you know, like National Endowment for Democracy and other groups have poured, poured some money into, um, um, you know, some trade unions and, and some other groups. But at the same time, I think the the narrative that that these um, that these people kind of totally cover up is the fact that the Chinese government has um, majorly courted. U.S. investments and U.S. interests, um, you know, decades before what's going on in the last year, right? I mean, China's own rise to power is predicated on super exploiting its own working class, right? Um, and exposing them um, to Western consumer markets, um, you know, for cheap labor, for cheap prices, as it continues to extract um, and, you know, kind of take on, uh, um, you know, people usually tout it as, as kind of the, you know, the progressive alternative to, to, to the West. But in reality, it's just kind of slotting itself into an existing world system, right, that's governed by imperial relations. And, um, and so, yeah, I think um, all the way to, uh, you know, U- U.S. law enforcement actually, um, you know, training Hong Kong police officers for years, um, or, or again, as I said, U.S. tear gas being deployed, um, um, you know, Pennsylvania made tear gas being deployed um, on the streets in Hong Kong. I think these people, I think the problem isn't the fact that, you know, um, um, you know, people who support the Hong Kong protests aren't anti-imperialist enough, uh, right, just as these people. I think the problem is that these writers are performing basically a selective critique of U.S. imperialism, right, by, se- by selectively ignoring the fact that Beijing government has also systematically courted, um, um, you know, these interests in a rate that, that, you know, all these kind of, you know, so-called pro-U.S. protesters or, or NED funding, um, you know, can barely rival, right, in terms of in terms of that. And I think, you know, as leftists, we struggle, right, with very, very complex mass movements um, wherever we are. And, you know, the example I like to use, and I think the piece and some other pieces, too, is that, you know, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement now, right, they're, they're cons- or, or, or just this, this kind of movement against Trump in the last four years, um, you know, has been um, characterized by um, or has been joined by, you know, some conservatives, liberals, NGOs and stuff, right? You know, people that we would traditionally fight against as the left, but we're forced on the same side against the kind of common cause and you know we don't like that and as leftists and organizers we must we must out organize that but that doesn't mean we you know we smear and wipe off the whole movement and i think the same logic applies to hong kong 
Andy, you and Promise write, standing in solidarity with Hong Kong is not about deciding which nation state is worse. It's about rejecting this false binary the ruling elites have crafted for us and resisting the spread and adoption of Western colonial frameworks by all states alike, especially China. How do ruling elites from both sides, from the Chinese side and the American side, how do they benefit from this false binary? And in your opinion, why do you think so often the left here in the United States falls for this false binary? As we wrote in our piece, acts of aggression by Beijing um, have been matched and intensified by the belligerent language of the um, Trump administration in Washington. It reflects a new Cold War uh, rhetoric like we wrote, a polarized worldview that obscures a global neoliberal consensus of oppression of everyday working class people. So the neither Washington nor Beijing doesn't simply signal that both states are equally bad, but it also rec- it recognizes that imperialism is a world system not limited to um, the boundaries of nation states. Um, so that way, uh, Hong Kong protesters and their supporters are in a, in a position to reject new rising imperial actors that reinforce this global system of uh, inequitable relations. I guess, like, furthermore, um, even uh, Trump and his far-right supporters um, have ignored the situation in Xinjiang um, and... Uh, Hong Kong whenever um, the trade war ebbs between um, China and U.S. So one of the things that people keep saying, though, Andy, is they see people who are at, they watch Fox News. They see people who are at the protests waving American flags. They see people at the protests asking President Trump for help. They hear about protesters asking the U.S. Congress for help. All of those things, according to many viewers and skeptics, uh, proves proves to them this is a pro-Trump, pro-American protest in Hong Kong. Why do you believe those images may not be an accurate representation of the protesters as a whole, Andy? Right, um, because those symbols don't represent um, the interests of all Hong Kongers. Um, in the media, we see um, symbols such as the U.S. flag or even, um, yeah, symbols like that, or we even see banners asking for Trump's help. But the reality is that that, um, that doesn't represent everyone's interests. Um, like we mentioned in our piece, the Hong Kong movement includes elements, um, like you mentioned, from across the political spectrum, but this does not invalidate the struggle against Beijing state violence. Um, like we said, the appearance of um, reactionary, xenophobic, U.S. flag-waving elements in the protest should definitely be condemned. Um, but the rejection of such elements is not an excuse for supporting or choosing to remain silent about the Chinese state, which has um, clearly courted U.S. interests on a scale much larger than um, 
pro-U.S. intervention Hong Kong protesters such as um, Joshua Wong or Nathan Law. So, uh, Promise, how bad is Fox News Channel's coverage of the protests in Hong Kong? How bad are they for the democracy movement that they supposedly, you know, they claim to be supporting? How much does that kind of focus on far-right reactionaries in the crowds at Hong Kong protests, how much does that Fox News coverage undermine any kind of left solidarity and undermine the actual protest that Fox News is supposedly supporting. Right. I think it's um, I think that coverage is definitely very, um, very, very destructive for movement, very destructive for left solidarity. And, um, you know, I think one factor that I I think is important to kind of point out is the fact that, um, you know, these people have been the first, have been the most vocal, um, you know, to speak in support for the Hong Kong movement. The Hong Kong movement hasn't, um, you know, has not has the same kind of international connections. And, and I think, um, you know, this, this whole past year has been kind of, you know, this kind of fast track, right, for Hong Kong protesters and really getting the grasp of what global geopolitics are like. And, you know, I think another point that we mentioned is that the left-right political spectrum doesn't exactly track in Hong Kong. There's not really a kind of um, a tradition of history of speaking about politics in those terms. Um, and so, you know, when faced with, you know, you know, I think the other thing is, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party, which has been kind of this authoritarian state repression or, or force of repression, um, is, you know, has monopolized, monopolized what it means to be in the left, right, for a whole generation or multiple generations of protesters. So that, that in itself already muddles things a lot, right? So when, when folks in Hong Kong are trying to think about, um, you know, global solidarity and are desperately, right, trying to find international allies, um, um, you know, as they're trying to learn about global politics and what this left-right thing even means. Um, you know, what they see is that the right has been the most vocal. And, and you know, and of course, that makes sense to us in the United States. Like, the right has always had a, a vested interest in, in, in pushing for U.S. intervention um, unjustly and destructively in other countries. And, and, and they have a whole kind of um, um, infrastructure, right, to, to push for these types of rhetoric, right? And, you know, just very pragmatically speaking, um, um, the left, right, um, the so-called left on our side has been either silent or actively demonizing them, right? And I think people see that, right? So, so um, you know, ideologically speaking, I think um, the Fox News coverage is very destructive, but I think, you know, the left needs to kind of wake up and just pay attention to the fact that um, if we're not going to extend solidarity, if we're not going to have and model practical alternatives for what it means to provide a progressive a leftist uh, kind of international solidarity paradigm for Hong Kong protesters. It's only natural for these people to look to the right that's been kind of standing there throughout this whole year, right, in, in support of whatever's going on. So I think, um, you know, not only is the coverage bad, and not only are, you know, there are definitely minority protesters on the ground who, who are actively courting, right, Fox News and, and, right, and right-wingers and stuff like that. You know, the, the, the way forward isn't to, uh, you know, the way forward is definitely condemn these elements, but the way forward isn't to completely spear the movement, right? The, the way forward as leftists is to provide a model um, alternatives, right, that we can concretely give um, to the movement. Um, you know, we have tons of resources at, at our disposal, tons of, um, you know, not only material resources, but, but um, you know, political and educational ones, right, in terms of unions and civil society groups, student groups. The left has always, um, you know, been at the forefront, right, of organizing these mass movements and groups. And, um, and yeah, I think uh, a lot of these alternatives are not being explored, um, you know, you know, mainly and partly because of, of, of this kind of disinformation muddying um, um, from some of these outlets. Um, and I think, you know, uh, now that the repression is getting stronger and stronger and, and, and the situation on the ground 
is more dire. I think this is precisely the moment for um, you know the left to really you know think clearly again. You know, it's its own kind of um, ignorance or or, or, or or condescension, right, towards what's going on in China and Hong Kong, speaking over protesters and and and, and not really believing the right for for mass movements to um, 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 to you know fight for its own liberation, right? Um, and um, I think the left needs to kind of wake up and really find its own place and, and, and discover what it means to um, um, provide the kind of support that, you know, that's always kind of been in our traditions, right, um, in the history of activism. Andy, Promise was just saying how the repression keeps getting stronger and stronger, even during the pandemic. The two of you write that the ongoing movement was forced into a hiatus as the COVID-19 pandemic swept through the city and its residents went into lockdown. To no one's surprise, Beijing officials took advantage of this dormant period by heightening, quote unquote, security to chip away at the city's pro-democracy camp. Increasingly aggressive actions toward pro-democracy lawmakers signaled what was to come. The Chinese Communist Party's tolerance for the movement had reached a breaking point, and it was intent on further suppressing Hong Kong's autonomy. How did, you know, there's a lot of media blackouts right now, whether they're intended or unintended. There's a lot of news blackouts that are more so than there usually is when there is no pandemic, when the United States media so often just ignores the rest of the world. But how did this heightening of security by Hong Kong police forces, by the Chinese Communist Party, play out in the lives of those who are protesting prior to the pandemic? How did this affect their lives? Because we're not getting any reports about any kind of clampdown during the pandemic on pro-democracy movements. So how did this kind of clampdown play out on the uh, protesters themselves? Sure. Um, Sorry, can you repeat? Did you mean during the um, During the pandemic, how the, the climate. pandemic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot like the last month. Okay, sure. Um, so yeah, like like we mentioned, the ongoing Hong Kong movement was forced into hiatus um, as the pandemic swept through the city. Um, but during during the last month, um, we see um, that the national security laws were passed on June thirtieth, um, and um, there these these new laws that were passed um, actually contain the same clauses and rhetoric as proposals that were shelved back uh, in 2003 when um, the Hong Kong government attempted to impose an anti-subversion law which criminalized acts of treason, secession, sedition, and subversion against the um, central government on the mainland. Um, so just over this past month, um, we've seen uh, that there have been new measures that criminalize broad forms of dissent. Um, we see that these laws have already banned popular protest chants, um, such as Liberate Hong Kong, Revolution of Our Times. Um, you may have heard that one, uh, as well as the um, censoring school textbooks. And um, honestly, it's just given the police force grounds to arrest protesters um, on really virtually uh, anything. The police brutality um, has been rampant since then. Um, And even um, prior to the pandemic, we think back to um, July 21st, the Yuen Long uh, gang attacks when the police allowed um, gang triads 
to um, beat up unarmed citizens um, on the metro. Uh, we see since last summer, um, sorry, I'm going kind of pre-pandemic, but into the pandemic, this rampant police brutality has built up um, over uh, time. We see that the police force has perpetuated violence using tear gas, rubber bullets, um, even live rounds at times. Um, as uh, <laughs> mentioned before. Um, and even more recently, we see that there have been restrictions on voting privileges. We've seen that there are business interests to control the electoral system as well. And I'm not sure if um, Promise may have some more to elaborate on this. Right. Um, sorry, the question was, um, yeah, what, what what are the kind of type of repressive measures that, that were present before the pandemic? Right? Well, and and what, how has it right. changed since the pandemic? How much worse has it got since the pandemic? Right. Because here in the United States, all of our focus is right. singularly either, if you're on the right, singularly on, oh, my God, what's happening to the police? The police are under threat. Or if you're in the centrist right. CNN camp, it's all just about the coronavirus here in the States. So, right. so how is it uh, affecting the protests in uh, Hong Kong. Yeah, um, I think I think Andy covered a lot of amazing points. Um, I'll just elaborate a bit more on the national security laws, right? I think, um, you know, I think the, the, the key thing to know about national security laws is that the final um, jurisdiction and interpretation, right, of these laws are in the hands of the Beijing government, right? So that effectively, you know, basically completely circumvents over the, the one country, two systems um, framework and, and completely overrides, right, um, um, Hong Kong's usual, at least, you know, what, whatever's left of its autonomy, right, um, in the last year. So, you know, I think the last month has been devastating. Um, um, I, I, I can't really sugarcoat it for, for activists and for everyday people. Um, you know, within a month of, of, of the security law, right, you know, there's tons of people, um, you know, arrested for, for um, you know, for basically no, not, not much of a reason, or, or they're trying to find retroactive reasons um, to arrest protesters. And this, this is already happening even before national security laws, right, like into the pandemic. I think, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I think I wrote about this in the moment already that, um, you know, the Chinese government is taking advantage of, of, of this kind of lull and activism to arrest key leaders. Um, you know, at the time in April and May, it wasn't that kind of bad, but it was kind of like you can tell, you know, they were digging up charges from August just for participating in a rally to arrest key movement leaders. Um, and this is only com- completely heightened, right? Like they have free range to do so by this point um, you know, after national security laws. Um, so yeah, you know, for example, you know, first person arrested for, 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 uh, under these laws, um, you know, was just holding a flag, right. It says something like, you know, liberate Hong Kong or something. And you get people being detained for holding stickers that just says conscience, you know, like you, know, you get, you get ridiculous things like that. And, and, um, you know, the, the, the judicial system and all these things are, are, you know, are directly appointed by Beijing. Now there's special bureaus, um, that are sent in or special kind of security officers sent in by Beijing. And all these things are being established as we speak. And, you know, one of the largest pro-democracy paper, uh, you know, the one of the founders are, are arrested just this morning or last night. And um, and, and, and the paper's operations are, are, are being sacked as we speak. Um, and, you know, and I think the you know, Chinese government is also targeting diaspora activists who are in exile and, and, and saying that, um, you know, they, um, you know, your, your Chinese citizenship overrides whatever other citizenships you have. Right. So I think. Um, you know, you know, Samuel Chu, who, who's based here in the United States, is a great example. You know, he's been doing a lot of activist work for the movement abroad, and he's been a U.S. citizen for decades. And and he's, you know, he's now um, on. Uh, he has a, there's an warrant for his arrest, right? Despite the fact that he's he, he has kind of um, some sort of dual citizenship. 
So, um, yeah, I think I think the thing to really underline, right, um, in the wake of the pandemic and these national security laws, um, and that's kind of little discussed in, in mainstream media, is that, um, you know, the, this, this kind of um, repressive framework behind these laws is, you know, neo-status, that, that's really the, the, the word in vogue in Chinese academia, um, and, and, you know, get people who are literally drawing from um, um, jurists from the Nazi era, right, Carl Schmitt, who has been kind of at the center of, of, of people like Jiang Shigong, who, who, um, who has been at the center of Beijing's kind of um, policymaking apparatus through its Hong Kong. So, so I think, you know, this, this turn towards repression is not, um, this turn towards repression and policing, right, cannot be divided from, from um, you know, China and Hong Kong's courting of Western capital and capital in general. Um, and um, I think, yeah, so I think that's that's kind of one thing to really note and that that really connects what's going on in China, Hong Kong to other movements, right, going on around the world. You know, most notably what's going on in Hungary, right, with Viktor Orban and stuff, right, this kind of resurgence of, of um, and I'm not using the word, you know, fascism lightly. I think it's, it's, a, it's a very, um, you know, it's a politically repressive framework that has a history and that's being revived and adopted in Chinese academies and t- Chinese elite police academies. Um, in the intellectual circles, and that's being directly deployed in Hong Kong and Xinjiang are becoming, um, um, again, um, experimental sites, right, for these kind of, um, um, this kind of amping up of, of, of um, um, state violence. But promise the original, very mainstream media reason for these protests was simply an extradition bill that would extradite Hong Kongers to Beijing courts in order for them to uh, seek be on trial for whatever crimes that they have committed against the government, the Central uh, uh, Communist Party, or the government within China. That extradition bill has been withdrawn. So. Why continue the uh, the protests if they achieve their goal or promise was the goal always more than just ending the extradition bill the way in which it was framed here in the U.S. establishment news media? Right. Yeah, definitely. The goal is more than that. And, and right. You know, we had five demands this whole time. And, and the uh, uh, at the end of the extradition bill is only part of those five demands. Um, you know, pol- uh, holding police violence and brutality accountable is another one demands. But really, I think the main point here, right, is, is the fact that, um, you know, with the handover, right, from the British government to, to the Chinese government, Hong Kong's civil liberties have not been guaranteed at all um, um, from this transition from colonial rule. Um, in fact, these colonial apparatuses um, have been, you know, basically completely maintained by the Chinese government, right? So I don't like describing it as kind of, you know, like China as, as this kind of uh, new, new form of imperial actor or something. I think for me, my analysis is the fact that you know, China and the Beijing government has been actively building off of um, the anti-democratic mechanisms that the British has put in place, right? So, you know, like, you know, not having, you know, something as basic as universal suffrage, right? Um, you know, something that actually Hong Kongers don't talk a lot about, but, you know, for activists and leftists in the movement, you know, they, they severely know about this limitation, this obstacle, is the fact that, you know, in 1997, um, in the wake of the handover, um, or actually, sorry, right before the handover, you know, activists and politicians have have you know fought for the right uh, right for workers um, to collect the bargaining right and and that's been hard fought and it's been finally passed um, in the eve of the handover and that was one of the very first things that the Beijing government has abolished um, upon its rule right so I think these indications and and you know you get pro Beijing unions right who are actively fighting against um, you know the reinstallment of of workers' rights to collective bargaining which is just completely ridiculous as a trade union or or, or, or you know you know, these organizations branding themselves as the left. 
So I think, you know, um, Hong Kongers activists are, are uniquely attuned to these, these kind of, um, you know, loss of civil liberties right off the bat or, or, or kind of preservation of loss of these civil liberties. And in the last 20 years, it's, 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 a, it's a gradual, um, you know, more and more of these civil liberties are lost and, and more and more of these promises that the Beijing, um, you know, tries to guarantee its people are, are, are kind of abolished and forgotten, right? And I think, um, you know, what was, what, was, what was most kind of important is that um, the traditional kind of opposition to Beijing rule, right, from the pan-democratic camp, um, you know, people have kind of also lost faith in that, right? And that's why we see this resurgence of, of, of you know, much more militant and hardcore strategies in the last year to fight for, you know, something, you know, so basic, right? Um, I think really the key for people is, is, is the right to vote, right? Because then you get functional constituencies, right, so-called, that control, you know, um, you know key parts of, of, um, of, of, of the state apparatus in Hong Kong, and, and those are controlled by, directly controlled by business interests. And, and really the center of power um, is not in the hands of the Hong Kong people. And that's why you get, you know, the district council elections. You get the kind of um, unofficial primary last month, right? Where you get people, you know, turning out in mass or hundreds of thousands of people voting in these elections that really actually don't mean that much at the end, right? Like, like practically speaking, right? It doesn't actually, um, you know, the primaries are unofficial. And, and as, as, we, as people well predicted, Beijing has, you know, banned almost all of those candidates that were voted out of these primaries and in the district council elections, you know, that, that's, that's, that's not really a power making role, but people are still trying to exercise this power to show the international community that, you know, we, we just want something as basic as the right to vote. And, and I think leftists on the ground are struggling to even try to raise class demands and, and, um, you know, deeper systematic issues, which of course we view as, um, you know, um, completely tied to the question of universal suffrage and basic democracy. But in the face of this repression and this kind of narrowing of political possibilities, I think, um, you know, the right to vote really, I think, um, ends up being a very, very important uh, um, um, kind of indicator of what, what Hong Kong people want moving forward. So, um, yeah, so I think definitely it's, it's, it's more than just an anti-extradition bill. Andy, last week we ended the week by talking to a writer at Africa is a Country, William Shockey, live from Johannesburg, South Africa. We were talking with him. He mentioned the impact of U.S. global cultural hegemony and television programs out of the U.S. that depict racialized policing and get tough on crime and law and order policing glamorized and the impact that has had on the culture of policing in South Africa. You point out the long-standing exchange between U.S. law enforcement and the Hong Kong police force. The Hong Kong police force has for years been a beneficiary of weapons and other riot control technologies from U.S. firms, many of which are also used against black protesters and their allies today in the U.S., with police abolition rapidly becoming a global clarion call. Hong Kong should serve as a concrete example in extending a campaign first begun in the U.S., preventing the spread and adoption of U.S.-style policing and counterinsurgency methods by other countries. So my question for you, Andy, is to what extent do you hold the U.S. responsible for globalizing our problematic policing that includes racialized violence against people of color? Is the world's policing problem that people are rising up against right now is that all the United States' fault? Well, thanks for the question. Um, I think that leftists, um, it should be our duty as leftists to oppose and stop the spread of U.S.-style policing and imperialism. But um, I, I think as leftists, we have a responsibility to hold all enablers of this 
U.S. imperialism abroad, um, especially the Chinese state. So just a couple more questions for you. Actually, one more question for each yeah. of you. We are speaking with members of the Writing, Translating, and Organizing Lausanne Collective, Andy W. and Promise Lee, who wrote the Tempest Magazine article, Left on an Island, Hong Kong, China and International Solidarity. You can find out more about the Lausanne Collective at lausanne.hk, and you can follow them on Twitter at lausannehk. We have direct links to both at our website. Again, this appears at Tempest Magazine, which is a new publication. You can find out more about Tempest Mag, Tempest Magazine by going to tempestmag.org or following Tempest Magazine on Twitter at Tempest underscore mag. So let's start with you, Promise. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And it usually falls into the audience is going to hate your response category. So, uh, Promise, you write, in effect now for only a few weeks, the laws have already banned popular protest chants, censored school textbooks, and have given the Hong Kong police force grounds to arrest protesters for raising blank placards in silence. That's the thing that really got me. You were mentioning waving a flag, but just holding up a blank Sign, people were getting arrested. This crackdown and dissent reinforces the Chinese Communist Party's determination to uphold its political power, which translate into the expansion of capital's power. So, promise, is being anti-China, being anti-communist, or being anti-capitalist? Right. <laughs> yeah, so I think, um, you know, I think, uh, I think China has, you know, kind of, Blaze its very own unique path of, of of what it means to do kind of capitalist exploitation, but no, I think I think it's definitely key that um, you know being against China is not against at least what I see as the central principles of communism, right? Of of of, of basic radical democracy, right, where workers actually own the means of production, and despite what these you know gray zone or or, or tanky writers say, um, you know, workers do not own the means of production in China. And I think, um, you know, a lot of it is, is completely lip service and, and, and workers being massively exploited, right, in a rate that, that rivals a lot of Western countries in China and in Hong Kong. And so I think, yeah, definitely being against um, the operations of the Beijing government is being anti-capitalist and should be a duty of anti-capitalist worldwide. That being said, right, that does not translate to being anti-China in the sense of anti-Chinese people, or even, or even, you know, that, that, that should not give cover, right, for kind of anti-Chinese racism that we see as, as completely, you know, overblown, right, and, 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 and full on in the discourse um, in, in, in mainstream U.S. media, right, with this kind of um, narrative of, of basically kind of a clash of civilizations that you get um, Pompeo and even Biden, right, that are echoing now. I think leftists should remain vigilant in, in resisting, um, you know, that type of... Um, um, that type of anti-Chinese, uh, you know, rehashed yellow pearl xenophobia. And, you know, we should stand in solidarity with, um, you know, the, you know, the agents of reform um, that, you know, there are very complex elements going on, um, you know, within what's going on in China. And there's been a lot, a lot of amazing activists um, um, and working class movements being, um, you know, that are still you know, waging the struggle. And we should stand in solidarity with those elements um, um, and, um, and of course, I think we also need to recognize the fact that, you know, this is not just about, you know, of course, we, we must stand with people and not states um, as leftists. And I think, you know, the thing to really emphasize is the fact that, 
you know, it's, it's, there are a lot of complicated elements going on in, 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 uh, in China under the Communist Party, right? Because there, are, there are kind of more reform-oriented elements, right? Even within the party, and you get these so-called kind of more Maoist-influenced new leftists, um, you know, who, who operate, right, right who, with, um, you know, with, uh, um, you, know, you know, they kind of skirt the line where, where they, they, they don't really get um, on, on the government's kind of uh, bad side. But at the same time, they try to make these kind of subtle critiques, right? Um, for a long time um, of, of this turn to market reform in China. And, and despite what you think of, you know, whether you side with the anarchists in China or whether you side with these new leftists that are kind of more sanctioned and recognized by the government, you know, what we didn't know is that there is a kind of chorus of voices, right, from the Chinese um, um, civil society um, that is opposed to this turn to capitals, turn to policing, um, this turn to anti-democracy, right? And, you know, I'm not here to, you know, of course, I have my own political allegiances and, 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 and ideological preferences, but I think the key is not, um, you know, the key is for people to actually just start reading these things, right? These, these indigenous kind of critiques of, 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 of the Chinese state and the direction it's in. And, you know, and so think for yourselves as U.S. leftists and, and um, um, yeah, and, and see, you know, what it means to articulate a kind of anti-capitalist practice um, from your positionality, right? That doesn't entail defending, apologizing for the Chinese state. Well, Andy, uh, this your question from hell kind of follows up on that. So, Andy, what happens to left politics when we determine what is legitimate or not based on Trump's position on the policy? What happens when we determine, when the left determines its positions on policies simply as, well, what is Trump doing? What is Fox News doing? We must stand on the opposite side. What happens to left politics when that's the framing? Well, yeah, thanks for the question. Um, What we need is positive vision for left activism. And I think if you're viewing um, global protest movements um, only from the lens of, well, what's Trump doing? We need to oppose that. You're missing um, sort of the whole picture. Um, Like we mentioned before, um, just because we see um, symbols of U.S. nationalism or you know, whatever, whatever it is, whether it's waving um, an American flag um, or um, not, uh, we, we need to keep in mind that um, we can't look at every movement from such a um, binary lens. We need to look at mass movements from global perspectives, just because we see those um, symbols from the U.S. Um, doesn't mean that we can, it, it doesn't mean that we can refrain from commenting on what's going on in Hong Kong. Um, we need alternatives to um, Trump's rhetoric. And um, I mean, in the end, we all know that he doesn't have the interest of the working class, um, despite what he says. Um, so if the left doesn't occupy the space and discourse, then the right will. Andy, 
promise I really enjoyed this conversation. Your writing at Tempest Magazine is exceptional. Again, Left on an Island, Hong Kong, China, and International Solidarity. Andy and Promise are both part of the Lausanne Collective. You can find out more about them at lausan.hk. You can follow them at the same thing, lausanhk. And you can find out more about the new Tempest Magazine by going to tempestmag.org. It really was a pleasure having both of you on the show. We are going to stay in touch with you. I believe uh, somebody who's been a fairly regular contributor on our show, Brian Hugh, is a colleague of yours as well. And we look forward to having both of you, as well as Brian, back on the show so we can keep telling people about a different view of what's happening in Hong Kong and not just based on this U.S.-China binary. I really appreciate you telling us what you know and teaching us what we need to know here on the show this morning. So thank you both so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. See? 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 It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On April 10th, 1628, 392 years ago today, Monday, the heavy, heavily militarized Swedish Empire, yeah, it used to be called the Swedish Empire, was bogged down in a seven-year-old war with Poland and Lithuania. The Swedish imperial domain already encompassed almost all of what are now Sweden, Finland, and Estonia. But King Gustavus Adolphus was not satisfied, intent on locking down his control of the Baltic. He had ordered a military buildup that included construction of the Vasa, one of the most magnificent and fearsome warships the world has ever seen, a large wooden model of which, built by my girlie's first-generation Swedish father, sits on our mantle in our home. It's huge. The Vasa was 172 feet long, the model is not that big, and was built to carry a crew of almost 450. Ours is about two and a half feet long, and uh, it has no crew, maybe some ants. From now, from bow to stern, it was richly detailed with fine wood carvings and gold leaf ornamentation, the better to intimidate the empire's adversaries, although personally I've never been intimidated by gold leaf. Most importantly, the ship had two full gun decks, one above the other, which made for an unusually high structure. During its construction, there were concerns about what so many heavy guns might do to the ship's stability in the water, but the king, who urgently needed the Vasa in his war plan, demanded that it be put to sea as soon as possible. The shipbuilders did not dare to cross him, and so on August 10th, 1628, 392 years ago today, Monday, with a full complement of dignitaries gathered on the banks of Stockholm's harbor, along with thousands of other spectators, the Vasa set out on its maiden voyage. It was loaded down with 64 heavy cannon, along with a full supply of cannon shot and more than a ton of gunpowder. As the dangerously top-heavy ship sailed majestically along the shoreline, it was hit by a breeze that filled its sails and sent it keeling over onto its side. The open portholes on the lower gun deck went below the waterline, and the Vasa quickly filled with water. Within minutes, the ship sank to the bottom about a hundred feet deep. Though the ship was only four hundred feet from shore, and boats in the harbor quickly came to its aid, 
Some 30 of its crew were killed, and Inquest later failed to assign blame to anyone, it's the gangs, other than the ship's original designer, who had died the previous year. The Vasa remained on the harbor bottom, half-forgotten for almost 350 years. In 1961, it was finally raised, restored, and put on display, where it's got this constant spraying of this like varnish resin plastic stuff to keep it perfectly intact because in the cold water it was kept perfectly intact so when they brought it up out of the water they have to keep the spray on it and from photos I've seen of it it looks weird it looks like it's totally covered in like inches of clear coat kind of it's weird it's the ultimate in war-making arrogance by a monarch and is a reminder of a brutal and violent imperial past Everything about it is gross, and I think I may be seeing the Vasa in person in May 2022, when we will be celebrating my girlie's father's 82nd birthday in Stockholm, supposedly. That is, if, you know, the virus. In Rotten History, August 12th, 1883, 137 years ago, this Wednesday, the last known quagga, a female, died in an Amsterdam zoo. Once prevalent in large herds throughout parts of South Africa, the quagga was a subspecies of zebra whose populations had declined for decades as they were hunted by Dutch settlers for meat and leather and because they were blamed for degrading the pasture land that settlers needed for their grazing livestock. Sounds about right. Settlers turned the land into a commodity, thus killing its natural inhabitants. Yep. That's about park for the course. When the last quagga died in captivity, the Amsterdam zookeepers knew the species had not been seen in the wild for five years previously. Also makes sense. The last one was in a zoo in the imperial nation that colonized and occupied South Africa. Yet the zookeepers failed to immediately realize that the quagga was the last of its kind. Complete lack of respect for nature. Yep. That's imperialism, all right. Another 17 years would pass before wildlife experts officially declared the quagga extinct. Now that's rotten history, and this is how... Alex, please tell us what's, what's happening on this week's shows. Uh, I got the whole week booked already, so Woo. I'm excited about that. Uh, so tomorrow, that's uh, Tuesday, 10 a.m., David Broder will be on to talk about his book, First They Took Rome, How the Populist Right Conquered Italy. Sweet. Yeah, I've been looking forward to that book for like a year now. David's a great guest. Oh, yeah. And then uh, Tuesday, or sorry, Wednesday, on Wednesday, Edward Onachi will be on to talk about his UNC Press book, Free the Land, the Republic of New Africa and the Pursuit of a Black Nation State. I've been looking forward to having him on the show for a very, very long time. And I don't know why, why his name keeps popping up, but it keeps popping up. Uh, then finally on Thursday, uh, Sarah Anderson uh, from the Institute for Policy Studies will be on to talk about a bunch of her writing for IPS uh, about the Postal Service. So we can kind of figure out what's going on. And uh, I put out there on Twitter a couple of days ago uh, that we were looking for Postal Service stuff. And do you know how many postal uh, workers we have listening to the show? A ton. Dude, they hang out downstairs. I see them all the time. Yeah, I've had three different people from the post office get in touch with me with uh, ideas. Let's see. Jordan, Johnny, and I can't think of the third one. There's like five of them hang out downstairs. It's really weird. And they all give me insight as to what's happening with uh, Postal Service, but they're not here and they're not postal workers here in Chicago, I think. It's, they live here in Chicago, but I think they're out in the burbs. I'm not too sure. And then Jeffy, 
on Thursday. Also, uh, I want to thank historian Rick Perlstein for getting back in touch with us. He contacted us to say that his new book, Reaganland, has been released, finally published. If you are an author who listens to the show, maybe has been on the show in the past, you might want to contact us to tell us that your book has actually been published because all the publication dates have been kind of up in the air due to the pandemic. So I just wanted to thank Rick for not only contacting us to tell us his book is going to be out. We're hoping that he will be on uh, the week after we come back from vacation. And he dropped the book off uh, here, and I was like, man, this is going to be great. I have some reading for vacation. I can just read Rick's book, Reaganland. It's a thousand pages. I won't be reading the whole thing. Also on tomorrow's show, Alex will be revealing this week's question from hell, and we will be reading some of your answers to this week's question from hell. By the way, if you have not heard, apparently there's a phone number you can call to sign up to be a member of Antifa. And if you call the number, the leader of Antifa will reward you by calling you back personally, which is amazing as there is no organization called Antifa as far as anybody knows, which means it does not have a leader. However, it is a great way for the far right or the state to collect information on Antifa sympathizers. So on Patreon this week, if I can convince Alex, we will be calling that number and signing up with hopes we can speak with the leader of Antifa. But you will only be able to hear that if you subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Alex, any guesses as to who the leader of Antifa is? Uh, that thing's a left-wing troll. <laughs> is it? Uh, yeah, putting the thing about the leader at the end uh, kind of gave tipped their hat a little too much on that one. Really? I, I'd put money on that one. All right, well, I want to call it off-air then first and see what happens. Let's see how this plays out. Also, thanks to the uh, tithing-like commitment of Kilter, as well as support from Rob and Vivian for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com by clicking on support and getting some of the new This Is Hell swag, including the new black mask, tote bag, the new black trucker's cap, which looks great. Patreon patrons get a secret code and $5 off all of our merchandise, which you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Promise and Andy and for being on the show to talk about their article at Tempest Magazine. Thanks to Alex for producing, and thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History. Special thanks to Thern and Richard, as always, for their work behind the scenes. We told you so. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.